1: Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Today, my guest is Lisa Bortolotti. Lisa is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Birmingham in the UK. She works at the intersection of epistemology and the philosophies of psychology and psychiatry. Her new book has just been published by Oxford University Press. Its title is The Epistemic Innocence of Irrational Beliefs. Now, there's something intuitive about the idea that when we believe, we ought to follow, in some sense of that term, our evidence. This entails that beliefs which are the products of certain garden varieties of irrationality, I'm thinking here of delusion and confabulation, false memories, these sorts of things, are for that reason, in some sense, derelict. Many philosophers would go so far as to say that people just ought not to hold beliefs of that kind. And some would go further to say that it's our duty to challenge those who hold that kind of belief. However, in The Epistemic Innocence of Irrational Beliefs, Lisa Bortolotti argues that the full story about irrational beliefs is far more complex and complicated and philosophically interesting. She identifies circumstances under which irrational beliefs are nonetheless beneficial in an epistemic sense, and thus, as she says, epistemically innocent. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. A lot of fascinating philosophical issues are are in the air. But why don't we begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Bob. How are you today?
0: Very well, thank you.
1: Fabulous. Um, we usually start these interviews off with, uh, by me asking the, the author to say a little bit about herself. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yes, sure. So um, I'm Italian. I was born in Bologna, and that's where I did my first degree in philosophy. Here in Italy, we do start uh, philosophy earlier than university, so I was already uh, completely both on on philosophy and I had a passion for it, although I didn't predict at the time that um, I would have become a professional philosopher. Mm -hmm. After my first degree, which was mm, very much on questions about conceptual relativism um, and and Davidson uh, idea, um, I moved on to uh, the UK. So I did a master at King's College London and there I started looking at issues concerning rationality and irrationality, but mainly in the context of the philosophy of science and scientific progress. And then I moved to Oxford for a B field and there I um, examined in my dissertation, again, issues about rationality and belief, but in the context of the um, Rationality debate in the cognitive sciences, so the question whether humans are rational after all. And uh, the PhD thesis was very much an extension of that project, uh, looking at whether there is any reason to think that we should adopt a rationality constraint on, on the description of beliefs. And I did that in Canberra, so in Australia at ANU um, with, with Martin Davies. So that was kind of a bit of a nomadic uh, student life. Um, <laughs> once I did that, I went back to the UK. Uh, I initially had a um, research position in Manchester on a European-funded project, and then I moved to Birmingham, where I've stayed. So. Actually, this September is going to be 15 years in Birmingham for quite a long time.
1: Congratulations.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what is exciting about Birmingham, being in Birmingham now, um, quite different from when I started, is first of all, the philosophy department has, uh, has developed, but also I developed myself an affiliation with the School of Psychology. They have an institute uh, for mental health. Uh, So I'm able to pursue my interest in philosophy and at the same time collaborate in an interdisciplinary way with psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, and other people who are interested in mental health from different uh, disciplinary backgrounds. So that's something that I really value about uh, where I am at the moment.
1: Fantastic. You know, one of the nice, uh, I should say, and refreshing features of your book um, is um, the, the the precise kind of interdisciplinarity. Um, you know, I know a lot of epistemologists who are very interested in certain empirical issues in the cognitive sciences, um, but your book is um, interested in empirical issues having to do with actual, you know, mental health uh, cases, <laughs> uh, which is... Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of philosophical content worth exploring there um, that I I take it isn't, uh, I mean, apart from from your work and a few others I can think of, I take it isn't very um, central on the radar of a lot of even empirically minded epistemologists. Does that seem right?
0: Yeah, I've, I've always been drawn um, to interdisciplinary work. And I think that's, you know, that's really um, something I owe to my PhD supervisor, because at the time in which I supervised me, Martin Davis was collaborating himself with psychiatrists and and psychologists. So I was seeing that kind of firsthand. But I I considered myself for a very long time uh, someone who was doing empirically informed philosophy, which meant that my duty, in a way, (laughs) was (laughs) to be aware of what was happening in the sciences, of course, in the relevant sciences to to the problems that I was interested in and make sure that my philosophical ideas were at least compatible with, possibly constrained by the latest results in in, in those sciences. But I never had kind of the presumption not being formally trained in psychology in doing uh, empirical work myself. Now, luckily, this has uh, slightly changed recently because thanks to my PhD students, which I co-supervise with uh, clinical and academic psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, I actually get to participate, uh, if not design myself, um, empirical work, which is extremely exciting because when I have a question, a philosophical question that I want to test out there in the real world, I actually have a venue for doing so. Uh, and also, I think this has increased enormously my respect for people that do empirical work, uh, because the, the difficulty of translating a big idea <laughs> into a, a research project with participants who are often vulnerable is, is extremely challenging.
1: Well, fantastic. So we, let's pick up uh, on, sort of on the, the, the what we we're just talking about, which is the, the sort of background uh, to the book. Um, so as you explain at the beginning of the book, and then you know get to uh, uh, again at the end, um, you've been working for many years on developing a research program around this idea of epistemic innocence. Um, it's in the title of the book. It is the the thread that holds the 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 arguments of the book together. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the, the, this this research program that that you've developed?
0: Yes, so it started with a sabbatical term uh, where I had the time to really sit down and think about what I wanted to do. Uh, I had been interested in belief and in, in irrationality uh, for, for a long time, uh, as I said possibly uh, from from the beginning of my uh, philosophical interest in in the mind and its strengths and limitations and i think one thing that, that always fascinated me intrigued me is the idea that we can achieve so much and yet you know our beliefs when taken by themselves, or even in some contexts, seem to be so uh, deficient in terms of how they meet standards of rationality, even standards of rationality that are quite basic, that are not necessarily very demanding. And I guess I've never been an apologist when it comes to human rationality. I've always thought, you know, if, if, if the psychological sciences are telling us that Um, you know, we are uh, failing these cognitive tasks. And if this happens across the board very much, uh, you know, among people who are lay people, but also among experts, then we have to take this seriously. Then this is really happening. But this leaves a lot of questions unanswered. So why is it? Like we can be very successful agents. And yet uh, when we measure uh, the rationality of our beliefs, the results are so disappointing. And uh, one idea uh, that came to me is that maybe there is some kind of reason why <laughs> this irrationality is there. And, and we can't very easily get rid of it, even when we are well-educated, well-informed um, and open to external feedback. Um, but it was all kind of brought to life uh, by a, a, an experience in my life. So my, my late aunt uh, developed Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. And one thing that was uh, very striking uh, about the way in which she was interacting with my father, and that was about the only person that she was interacting with in that way, is that she was talking about their lives when they were children, what they were doing. They used to live very close to the sea um, in a way that uh, suggested that the events that she was relating were happening uh at the time they were you know this morning we went for a walk on the beach i went actually it had happened uh 60 70 years earlier and what was striking about it is that uh, my dad decided not to challenge those um reports um but just to go along with it uh, to ask her questions about it and according to her primary caregivers those were the times when she was most relaxed. Um, less hostile uh, and most open to uh, to to talk about herself mm. and what she could remember, almost as if it was important for her to be able to contribute to the conversation in this way, despite, of course, uh, her beliefs having the wrong time tag uh, and and not by uh, a little margin, but uh, quite quite substantially. So despite her believing, for instance, that her parents were still alive when when they weren't. Um, And I thought, okay, so what if um, it's actually to some extent, and I want to put this in inverted comments because that's not the conclusion and then I reach, but good for her to talk in this Mm -hmm. way, to to, uh, relate, report what she can remember, even if what she can remember is not accurate, strictly speaking, or not even close to accuracy. And, uh, and that is when I started thinking about uh, epistemic innocence. Uh, and initially, I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to read more about um, people with dementia um, and the conversations that they have. And that's what they did. And then I realized that maybe, you know, if, if we go down this line, if we start thinking that some irrational beliefs have some kind of role to play, Um Maybe to say that they have a function is too loaded because you're expecting them to have a function of a certain kind, but certainly a role to play in the way in which we uh, deploy our agency, especially in critical times then maybe it's not just this type of beliefs in the context of dementia that we can explain, but also other types of beliefs that seem incredibly resistant to counter-evidence and to challenges, even when the person herself has some kind of understanding that what she's saying is not um, accepted, or is not, uh, it doesn't go completely unchallenged by by her audience. And so that's when I started developing the idea of, of, of epistemic innocence, uh, the idea that maybe rational beliefs um, of a certain type in certain contexts are there to salvage something um, that cannot be salvaged in any other way, Um, which is not to say that they are always uh, justified or it is always a good thing epistemically to adopt them and then go on to them. But even if, you know, we are not embarking in this project as uh, an attempt to justify what we're doing, to apologize for our irrationality, at least we can start explaining uh, what is happening. So for me, it was a way of getting a little bit clearer about something that had worried me for quite a long time.
1: Great. So Emma, would it be right to say then that just the term now, epistemic innocence, you mean to convey the... um, The thought that there are some beliefs, either ways of um, um, acquiring a belief or maintaining a belief or uh, expressing or reporting a belief. There are certain modes of believing that um, have their source in um, certain kinds of uh, phenomena that we would think are – you know, in in some sense dysfunctional, but that there are conditions under which even beliefs that have that causal history or that background nonetheless might be innocent only in the sense that it's not clear whether they should be condemned qua belief. Is that right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, when I started thinking about this phenomenon in terms of innocence, um, there was a lot of resistance. Um, you know, referees, when they were looking at my papers or even at my uh, grant applications, uh, that that is the thing that bugged them. You know, why are you using this term? Um, right. You cannot you find something that doesn't have the heavy load that the word innocence has in ethics, in legal context, and so on. But it really spoke to me in a way that was different from justification um, and also in a way that I could find in the way in which people in legal context talk about uh, the innocence defence. So the innocence defence is something that happens when people do something that on the face of it is an offence, right? So it may be an assault, it may be something that... um, should attract uh, a a sentence. Um, But there are reasons why they're doing it um, that suggest that maybe we should excuse them. Um, And so the typical case, uh, I think the one that is closest to my uh, interest and that I use for the analogy with the epistemic innocence of belief is self-defense. So it's clearly not unproblematic uh, to push, let's say, someone away in in a violent uh, way. At the same time, it may be the only way to stop them before they detonate a bomb that might kill uh, um, several people. Um, So it is uh, like an emergency response. That's the way that I think of it. Uh, It's not that the act stops being problematic. Uh, because of its context. But we can understand why the person did it, and we can also understand that it is not a bad thing that she did it in the way that she did when she did it. And and it's very context-dependent. So the same act, the same person, um, might not be considered in the same way in a different context. (laughs) Um, And that is what appeals to me um, in in this term. Um, These are beliefs that are not unproblematic. They are epistemically irrational and they are epistemically costly in other ways over and beyond their irrationality. Uh, It's not a good thing epistemically to have them. Um, At the same time, there may be a a set of circumstances in which for the person involved, uh, adopting that belief or reporting that belief um, is a way of stopping something worse from happening and uh, where the the worst is epistemic so you may be a way of avoiding uh, a complete paralysis of our capacity to interact with the social physical world or something like that and i think the case of dementia really speaks to that so the case of dementia is a case where there are challenges and impairments in our capacity to remember autobiographical events but it's not that we can get better. Typically, it, it is a degenerative condition, which means that uh, the opportunity for self-correction after uh, challenges and external feedback are limited. Uh, so there may be a fluctuation in performance, but standardly we go from bad to worse. So our, we're going to lose, uh, rather than acquire uh, autobiographical memories. Our autobiographical memories are going to get worse, less accurate rather than more accurate through time. So the idea is that reporting that little autobiographical information that you have, although distorted, may actually be the only way of retaining that bit of information a little bit longer. And by retaining a little bit of information about yourself, you retain a part of your identity. Uh, which uh, gradually, at least that's what uh, often people describe it in the case of dementia, dissolves or fades through through uh, the stages of the illness. So it, in these clinical cases, I think, in these dramatic cases where the impairment is, uh, is significant, epistemic innocence um, signifies that we are adopting a belief which is suboptimal in many ways that we can describe and elaborate on, at the same time, uh, that belief is playing an important role, maybe giving me a sense of myself for a little bit longer before I lose the sense of who I am.
1: Great. That, that's that's very helpful. Um, and I, I take it that it's consistent with a verdict that a particular instance of belief is epistemically innocent um, with. Um, you know, again, as you were saying with, with seeing it as nevertheless um a belief that one shouldn't adopt or that there's still all kinds of problems is 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 that is the 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 claim that a particular mode of belief is epistemically innocent is to say that despite its irrationality, it might still be um um, epistemically beneficial in some way, so the irrationality itself is not enough to impugn it. Is that right?
0: exactly? Yeah, Got so you capture that very well, and and to some extent, it is not so much. It's not just that the rationality um, itself is not enough to you know to decide against the belief, challenge it, confront it, and so on. Sometimes it is the reason why the belief is playing the useful role that right. it is playing. Um, and that is what when things become very counterintuitive, and when my <laughs> process of trying to persuade people that there was some value in this idea became quite difficult, um, because people could concede to me very easily that an irrational belief, an inaccurate uh, report, uh, may have psychological benefits. So you may feel better when you think mm-hmm. about yourself in that way. But what seemed to be very difficult to accept is that um, there was more. and um, There was an epistemic dimension to it. So it, was, it, it is your capacity to act in as an epistemic agent to acquire, retain and use relevant information about yourself and about the world that is enhanced, not just your well-being or, you know, or, so it's not just a stress avoidance move. It is actually something that sometimes via psychological benefits, but at other times uh, quite directly, it enhances our capacity to be uh, effective epistemic agents. Um, and I think that's, that's where, I guess, the, the novelty of, of the idea lies is that you know, the, we have to accept the counterintuitive idea that something that is epistemically bad because it is inconsistent with other things that you believe, because it doesn't fit with what other people uh, say was happening and the other people happen to be right. And and for many other reasons, um, still uh, is actually beneficial because if you didn't adopt that belief or afford that belief, you'd be in a situation where um, worse epistemic things could happen to you. Um,
1: Good. And so, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I take it that the, the 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 thesis is that certain kinds, of, certain instances of irrational believing, might nonetheless be epistemically innocent, because under certain kinds of circumstances, those kinds of irrational beliefs nonetheless contribute to uh, what you call epistemic functioning. Yeah. And I guess the rider here is important. And there's no alternative that would do better
0: yeah yeah so the the notion of epistemic innocence in in the way in which I propose it in the book um, has three uh parts three conditions uh so Good. for for a belief to be epistemically innocent um first of all, we are thinking of it as an epistemically uh, irrational belief, and that corresponds in the in the self defense uh, analogy to the idea that. Uh, you may be doing some harm to someone uh, in order to stop them from um, acting uh, in a in a way that would be even more serious harm, would bring even more serious harm. So. Um, by epistemic irrationality, I think I adopt a fairly standard notion of epistemic irrationality where the main ideas are that either the belief is not well supported by the evidence that is available to the agent or it is resistant to um, counter evidence um, that becomes available after the belief has been adopted. In some cases that I consider in the book... Um, the, the beliefs that I call epistemically irrational actually have both features. So they're mm-hmm. both badly supported by evidence and resistant counter evidence once they've been adopted. Um, the second idea is that uh, despite being irrational and having possibly other epistemic costs that are not entirely captured by by the notion of the rationality, the belief as epistemic benefit. And you're absolutely right. The way I try to cash out the idea of epistemic benefit um, is by using this notion of epistemic functionality. So the idea is that, um, especially for artifacts, we imagine them having a a function that they can perform uh, more or less well. Uh, so the example I use in the book is the hand pump, uh, when when you need to get water out of the soil. Um, now, there are some features of the artifact uh, that determine whether uh, they, they they play their function in the way that we would expect. Uh, so whether they are built well, whether they are designed well. But critically, in order for them to do what we expect them to do, there also need to be environmental circumstances that are favorable. Now, you can't get water out of the soil if there is no water to be um, to be pumped up. And I think that's something that sometimes epistemologists, especially formal epistemologists, so people who are very focused on justification and truth as the main issues that epistemology should focus on, forget that we are. <laughs> we are not in a vacuum. Uh, we are in an environment that very much determines what kind of information is available to us and how we, um, how we evaluate that information, what we do with it. Um, so the idea is that maybe we should, sh- we should think of agents a bit like artifacts that perform a certain function and we should think about epistemic functionality as their capacity Um, to attain their epistemic goals um, in certain environments where there can be limitations and constraints um, to what they can do. Now, immediately, when you put the problem in terms of functionality, it it sounds a bit less like an epistemic problem and more like a psychological problem. But I guess one idea uh, is that You can't really detach those two dimensions as neatly as sometimes philosophers would like. We are agents in an environment where lots of things affect our capacity to uh, deal with the information that we have. So epistemic benefit is this idea that if um, a belief if having a belief and having could be interpreted in different ways as you mentioned earlier it could be the way we adopt the belief the way we retain it the way that we report it Um, brings them some uh, epistemic benefit which means um, enhances our epistemic functionality in some respect Um, then we should think of it as 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 beneficial as meeting this second condition for for epistemic innocence. So it needs to be epistemically rational. You need to um, help us perform our uh, uh, job as epistemic agents and thus attain our epistemic goals. And lastly, um, the idea is that there are no better or easier ways to Mm enhance our epistemic functionality. So there isn't, for instance, another belief that is uh, entirely available to us and that is less epistemically rational that has exactly the same benefit or has a benefit to the same extent. Because otherwise, you know, we should really go for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is a lot of... um, Again, a resistance to the idea that the, what I call the, the no alternative um, options, no alternative conditions, um, is, is actually something that we should include and integrate in the notion of epistemic in that sense. But uh, one way of solving this problem, um, because of course, once you talk about uh, availability of alternatives, um, we, we know this from, from the philosophy of science. What matters is is the framework in which you operate. Um, so w- what is a relevant alternative in this case? Um, it's a very interesting question. So one way in which I try to go around this is to be quite broad um, in terms of the, the types of availability that I consider. So there is what we would normally consider um, availability uh, to core. So the idea that... Um, other beliefs that play the same role um, and are less epistemically rational are strictly unavailable to you. So you can access them, you can't uh, form them. And I think this speaks very well to some of the clinical cases. So if, if I can't form any more autobiographical memories, then you know <laughs> I cannot really replace my inaccurate one. With, um, with a more accurate one. Uh, so the, the possibility, as I was saying earlier, of self-correction is extremely limited. And so it looks as if unavailability there really retains a of bit of strength. Um, but there are cases where unavailability is a much looser concept. So it may be that there are other beliefs that um, can play that role to some extent, but they would have enormous psychological costs for me. Uh, for instance, they you'd, uh, you'd force me to accept a view of myself as um, deficient in some way, which yeah. would undermine uh, my capacity to operate epistemically in an effective way. Um, and I think um, that notion of motivational uh, unavailability, um, is actually very important when we are considering um, our performance in everyday life and in clinical context, because very often the impairment, um, the neuropsychological and neurobiological deficit that uh, people identify as the main reasons why some of your cognitive um, performance um, declines is only part of the picture then you also need to explain why is it that you react to that particular deficit in the way in which you do. Um, and and when you are thinking about that, so you may be that my belief, that's just an example. My belief forming mechanism doesn't work well. Okay. So this explains why I may adopt an irrational belief, but it doesn't explain or at least not entirely why that belief has the content that it does. Right. So, in order to provide a more a comprehensive explanation of some of these phenomena, we need to look also at motivational factors. So, very often we go for certain belief contents because that's what we need to believe. Uh, either you know, because we have a psychological sense that we are kind of defending ourselves from uh, a reality that is too uh, bleak, too difficult for us to accept, or there may be other reasons. Uh, but, but I think it's it's we need a a notion of motivational unavailability because without it, there would be too many open questions about the way in which these kind of things go. And lastly, and this is the weakest notion of um, unavailability of all, is explanatory unavailability. So that's just the idea that, yes, you could have a better explanation of what what is going on. You could have a belief that is less uh, epistemically rational. But, you know, the... (sighs) the option is not made salient to you. It doesn't seem to fit what you already know to an extent that it doesn't seem to actually improve your understanding of the situation. Um, and in some cases where people's behavior is counterintuitive and we realize what is really um happening in terms of the causal mechanisms that are affecting our behavior, because we study, for instance, scientific psychology or because we do neuroscience, then uh, you do understand that, you know, you don't have this kind of transparent knowledge of all um, causal phenomena that allows you to just pick the belief that best um, uh, fits the situation and uh, is supported by the evidence. You just have to come up with a theory. And very often the theory is biased in your favor and is not completely accurate. And right. there are better theories out there, but they are not available to you in the same way.
1: Well, that's, that's very helpful. And um, that really, you've just done a very, very nice job, I think, of laying out the, the sort of conceptual philosophical framework um, that uh, you defend in the book. Um so the core chapters of the book, though, are are, are devoted to um, sort of uh, analyzing particular sites or particular kinds of epistemically um, innocent, irrational believing. Uh, so I want to make sure that we get through. Uh, talking about uh, some of these particular examples because the details are pretty fascinating. Um, so g- can we start then uh, where you begin, which is um, has to do with uh, the kind of case you were describing earlier, um, uh, people who are um, suffering under dementia, and particularly sort of distorted memory beliefs. Uh, you, you, may, you argue that um, there are certain circumstances, and maybe they're not uncommon, I should add, where um, distorted memory beliefs are epistemically irrational, but nonetheless uh, epistemically innocent. Um, Can you tell us about uh, how that particular kind of irrationality uh, might nonetheless uh, um, be innocent?
0: Yes, of course. So I think it is important to say at the beginning that we also have distorted memory beliefs in everyday life, in non-clinical contexts. Um, For instance, we may have uh, biases in the way in which we remember certain events, uh, or we may um, just fill the gaps in in our um, memory recounts um, in ways that do not uh, actually seem to fit with um, reality. And this is something that people have observed in forensic setting, for instance, and in many other settings. But I think the case of distorted memory beliefs in those um, conditions that are characterized by severe uh, memory impairments, especially autobiographical memory, are more striking because that's a case where you can really see the importance of uh, maintaining a belief that other people find uh, Obviously false, not just false, but uh, false to an extent that is really difficult to accept, not to say anything uh, about it, not to confront it straight away. Um, So what is important about the notion of distorted memory beliefs in the way I'm using it? I'm not the only one, but I think, again, it's important to be precise about this. They're not entirely fabricated events. Mm. So they are um, reports of events that have uh, a grain of truth in them. Uh, but they also have uh, inaccuracies that are uh, very, very evident. Uh, so the, the time tag idea, I've already reported so sometimes people with dementia tend to uh, talk about people who have died a long time uh, ago as if they're still alive or to anyway uh, forget or not uh, being able to remember very significant events about their own lives. But they also seem to talk of themselves um, as if they are tapping on to their pre-morbid uh, lives. So their their lives before the illness. So they tend to say things like, this morning I went to work uh, and in my office, you know, my colleague told me that this was the case. Now, this is not an entirely fabricated event. It might have really happened a long time ago when the person still had a job, was not retired, was not in hospital the person reports it as something that is true of their current self. And I think, again, here we go back to the idea that we need to consider both the impairment as something that the person cannot actually do. So they kind of keep track of their autobiographical memories in the way in which we do when we do not suffer from these uh, conditions, but also the kind of motivational factors. So it seems to be very important for some of these people to be able to establish themselves as the self-sufficient, autonomous, independent people that they were before the illness. And so very often these memories have as content, a content that is favorable to to their idea of themselves. Uh, It's not that they invent achievements, but they often exaggerate their own achievements. Um, So one case that was described by Ekaterine um, Futopolo, uh, who works with people with um, anosognosia, people who confabulate in a number of uh, circumstances, uh, and people with amnesia, is the case of someone who says, oh, and I won an award you know, for the best football player in my year for three years in a, in a row. And maybe he won it once, right? So mm-hmm. the idea is that there is a grain of truth. So if he thinks of himself as a good football player, he's not making any mistake. But there seem to be details, sometimes uh, minor details, sometimes important details of the report that um, are uh, problematic. They are not accurate. What is interesting about this kind of case is that we immediately realize how important the memory belief is. So it's part of their identity. So they may see themselves as that person who was a good football player when he was in college or... Um, or again, there are many, many interesting cases from uh, real life, uh, first-person accounts or caregivers' accounts of, of dementia. That um, that show this kind of tendency to see themselves as uh, better uh, than they actually are. In they actually were in some respect. Sometimes it's not. Their own talents or skills sometimes is interpersonal relationships. So some people describe their families as more harmonious than they actually were and so on. So there is this uh, phenomenon. Um, We can see immediately what the epistemic irrationality is, the epistemic costs are. So clearly, if you have a picture of yourself, uh, maybe a self-narrative or an identity intended or a set of beliefs about yourself that depend on largely inaccurate beliefs, um, that picture will not be consistent with how other people see you uh, may generate trouble when it comes to relationships and uh, interactions. People may just stop listening to you, trusting what you say, consider yourself as someone credible. Um there is also a problem in terms of the kind of internal consistency of this picture um, mm-hmm. and how it leads to action. Like if you expect your parents to be still alive and to be living at the seaside when that is not the case, you might put on your swimsuit uh, and call your mom uh, when that doesn't have any response from the immediate environment. So there are lots and lots of problems. Nobody saying that those are ideal beliefs to have. At the same time, because they often, if not you know, not always, but sometimes, at least, incorporate some uh, important information about yourself, you want to end on to them. And uh, research shows that the best way of end on to a belief, even when you have memory impairments, is to repeat it, to report right. it as many times as you can. So one phenomenon that has been found in dementia patients is that they may tell the same story, five or six times in the course of the same conversation, which is something that puzzles other people um, and and sometimes annoys them. But the idea is that it's actually quite adaptive for them because that's the way they can recall. That's the way they make sure that at least in the short term, they don't forget. Um, And starting from this kind of uh, wealth of uh, interesting evidence and testimony, um, I, I, I draw some conclusions. So I, I draw the conclusion that, yes, uh, study memory beliefs are irrational because they're not very often based on evidence. Actually, the, the source of the evidence is often not available because autobiographical memory is uh, impaired. Um, <laughs> This means that uh, interactions are made more difficult. Uh, Action sometimes is based on beliefs that are not uh, reliable or don't give accurate information about the environment. At the same time, uh, they may be the only vehicle for preserving a notion of yourself that is gradually fading. So you're going to lose. Um, bits of your identity so I, I, I talk about identity in the way psychologists do just kind of a set of beliefs about yourself that you recognize mm-hmm. yourself with, nothing kind of more metaphysically suspicious mm-hmm. and and it's bad when you lose your identity in this way so research shows that people um, are better when they have a sense of themselves uh, when they don't when they are not sure uh, about who they are, what features they have Um they can't participate in conversation confidently because they have no content to relate. Um, Their well-being suffers um, and uh, they may become very anxious um, and very unsettled. So these are also as kind of uh, interesting psychological repercussions. But more interestingly to us, epistemically, um, there is very very, very little that they can do. Uh, in terms of improving their cognitive performance um, by having their distorted memory beliefs rejected or confronted by other people. So uh, in this sense, we may consider these beliefs epistemically innocent because they are um, preventing an epistemic disaster from happening, which would be the lack of uh, enough information about yourself. Um, which means that you can't participate in conversations, receive feedback, attain new information, and so on. Um, and also the sense that you, if you take from someone the capacity to socialize, to interact, to talk, to contribute to a conversation, you are also taking away a big chunk of their epistemic functionality. So a lot of right. what we do as epistemic agents, we do... Um, In cooperation, in collaboration with other people, we don't do it by ourselves. It's peer feedback is essential. Mm. So the sense is that maybe we should really think hard about what to do when we are faced with this belief, this uh, memory, um, with distorted memory beliefs in other people. Uh, There may be circumstances in which it is important to challenge the belief. But there may also be circumstances in which we can just tolerate it and maybe go along with it uh, to try and help the person do what they are unaware that they are doing, which is trying to preserve a little bit of themselves for a little bit longer.
1: Excellent. Um, so, the um, again, I want to make sure that we 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 go um, we have time to to sort of hit the. The, all the categories so you you devote one chapter to what you call everyday confabulation and then a subsequent chapter to delusions um i don't know if there's an easy way to sort of uh collapse some of these considerations together um but can we talk um about those two kinds of phenomena confabulation in the yeah. everyday sense uh and uh delusional beliefs you want to argue that um, both instances of everyday con- confabulation and instances of both what you call la- elaborated and motivational delusional beliefs can be epistemically innocent. Can you run us through how that, that pair sure. of arguments works?
0: Yeah. And I think it will take less time now that we've got the foundations Great. of epistemic innocence laid out before us. So um, conf- everyday confabulation is this phenomenon that um most philosophers of mine now are familiar with um, where people tend to explain their own, their own behavior in ways that do not actually correspond to the likely uh, causal processes that generated that particular behavior. Um, and this is extremely common. Uh, all of us uh, do that. All of us confabulate in different contexts. Uh, one context in which this has been studied is consumer, uh, and consumer choice. Another context is um, justifying moral judgments, for instance, or explaining moral judgments. Um, And the idea is that we do something. We think we know why we did it. And when we are asked for an explanation, that's the explanation that we offer. We are completely sincere in thinking that that's the accurate explanation for our own action. But it turns out that there were factors that we were not aware of that actually determined or largely determined what we did. Uh, And so our explanation ends up being ill-grounded, so not based on the actual causal mechanisms. So the classic examples is you've got two pairs of socks in front of you, you're asked to choose one pair, you choose one, Um, people ask you, okay, so why did you make this choice? And you say, oh, because this pair of socks is much more bright. You know, I like the color much better than the other one. Um, As it happens, the two pairs were identical in all respects. So that cannot have been the reason why um, you chose them so the you, you must be kind of um, offering a plausible explanation of what you did rather than the accurate explanation of what you did. And it is plausible because when we are asked to choose between things, we tend to think that we do it because of the intrinsic features of those things that we're choosing from and how they relate to one another okay. in the context of the choice. But as in the kind of classic Nisbet Wilson experiment, what turns out to be the case is very often is completely um, random uh, pr- primacy effects that determine what we do. So what happens is that if we are right-handed, we tend to choose the item on the right, um, and that, that is a pretty pretty uh, robust finding. Um, um, but we don't. Justify our choice by saying, "Oh, this pair of socks was on my right, and that's why why I chose it." Um, So, why do we do that, and why is not so bad for us? We do it simply because we don't know what the real explanation is, uh, and we can't even suspect uh, that um, it has something to do with uh, primacy effect, unless we have studied. psychology uh, to, to, to some level of detail and we are aware of this particular experiment uh, not knowing why we did something we come up with the most plausible explanation that we can think of um, this is uh, something that we do without knowing that we're doing it um, and it's something that I think is quite natural to do because if you are presenting yourself to others I guess you better present yourself as someone who does things for a reason, and and possibly I think uh, things for a good reason, right? So choosing the the best pair of socks available is is what you want to be doing. That increases your status, uh, certainly, in a kind of social context. If uh, I were to ask you why you chose that pair of socks, and you were to tell me, I'm not sure, uh, I wouldn't um, necessarily uh, have a good impression of you as a, a someone who makes good deliberations. Now, the case of socks is pretty trivial, but uh, people confabulate in all kinds of contexts sure. when they have to make very important decisions about their romantic lives, their uh, professions, uh, and, and so on. And also their political choices, very fascinating experiments suggesting that people uh, justify with uh, or, or explain their choices, even when um, actually the experimenter shows them that their choice was the opposite of what they had chosen. So (laughs) um, that that is extremely interesting uh, phenomenon. So it's not a mystery why we do it uh, simply. um, We don't uh, know any better. Uh, That's not available to us. Uh, The the, the correct explanation is not available to us. Now, you may wonder why I want to say that these are epistemically innocent beliefs. And in in some sense, People think that if we stopped confabulating, then we would make much better decisions in the long run. So that is a very kind of, it has a very bad press confabulation. It is considered to be the main reason why we should give up on self-knowledge claims. Um, <laughs> but I think that in the absence of uh, the accurate information, providing an answer that makes sense uh, is actually uh, a pretty good thing to do uh, when you compare it to uh dumbfounding just not saying anything um partly for the kind of psychological and social uh reasons that i alluded to earlier that it makes you sound more credible more authoritative a better deliberator and people are going to trust you and so on but also for uh, reasons that may turn out to be epistemic so if you just stop the conversation by saying, I'm not sure why I did this, um, nothing can come out of it. But if you allow the conversation to continue by providing an explanation that people can challenge, uh, for instance, as in the debriefing sessions of these kind of experiments that cognitive and social psychologists do, then you open up yourself for self-correction. And in this case, self-correction is available because your capacity to provide explanations is not damaged or is not fading due to impairments. It's still perfectly intact, it's just that you don't have the right information to feed in at the beginning of the process. And by presenting yourself as a competent and largely coherent uh, agent and deliberator, you actually increase your chances of behaving as one when when you do have the chance of deliberating. So when you actually do have all the information that you need, you know you want to preserve the image of yourself as someone who is coherent and someone who is competent and you tend to act in that way. Um, So um, my sense is that everyday confabulation is not entirely bad, should be overcome, but it should be overcome in such a way that we are not, taking away from people Mm -hmm. explanations for their own behavior without replacing them with anything that gives them a sense of their being good agents. Um, And so there needs to be a process by which information about psychological mechanisms is disseminated widely, but it needs to also make clear that we do retain some capacity to uh, affect our choices and determine what we are doing even if in some circumstances cues will become extremely influential. Right. I think the right. case of delusion is different because, again, as in the case of distorted memory beliefs in the clinical context, delusions are pretty dramatic. Um, and, you know, if there is a paradigmatic example of an irrational belief, that's delusion for philosophers. And most philosophers actually deny that delusions are beliefs at all. Um, just on the basis of the fact that they are too irrational (laughs) to be be beliefs. So I guess those two chapters are really the most, um, I would expect the ones that stir more controversy, uh, because people will say, oh, not only you're telling me that they are beliefs, but you're also telling me that it's not bad for people to have them. It might also sound like disrespectful towards people who suffer immensely from conditions that involve delusional beliefs. So it is very important for me to uh, be clear that I do recognize that delusions are irrational, irrational in numerous ways, not just epistemically so, and that they are undesirable beliefs to have. for the effects that they have on people's functioning and psychology, and uh, for many other reasons that affect their relationships and their status. That said, I think the question I want to pose um, is a question that hasn't had much of a hearing, um, even in the empirical uh, context in psychology and psychiatry. So are delusions really the source of the problem, or are they an imperfect response? A problem. Right. And I want to see them very much as emergency responses, uh, uh, as things that people do, not consciously, of course, things that happen to people, which actually enable them to uh, keep acting as epistemic agents in situations where everything is collapsing on them uh, as a very dramatic circumstances. And, and I think that's the same move in the two chapters on elaborated systematized delusions that appear in the context of schizophrenia and in the case of motivated delusions they might appear as isolated cases of uh, radically irrational beliefs in the context of uh, someone functioning pretty well otherwise. Uh, there are emergency responses. There are emergency responses to different things. So, In the context of schizophrenia what I'm imagining is that someone is experiencing something very anomalous so there is a an anomalous experience, often uh, people talk about hypersalience, which means that they have an experience that for other people would be just random, unimportant, but to them becomes absolutely central. <laughs> they have this sense of significance that they cannot explain, and that causes a lot of stress and anxiety and uncertainty, and that paralyzes them. So, uh, decreases concentration um, and uh, the capacity to interact with the environment in a way that is effective. So, the delusion is a response. I need an explanation for this. I come up with an explanation that seems to fit um, the experience. And very often, the explanations are wild because the experience is anomalous, it's due to a neuropsychological impairment of some sort. It differs depending on the type of delusion that we are considering. But here, uh, I want to make the case that the delusion is very much an emergency response that allows the person to keep interacting with the environment, uh, albeit imperfectly, and in ways that generate more problems down the line. Um, And the the example I use is a man who has uh, experiences of dogs uh, in front of churches. He sees a dog in front of a church. You wouldn't think any of it, any, anything about it. You think it's just a normal, completely coincidental phenomenon. The dog raises his front paw, and the person thinks, OK, uh, God is talking to me through this mm-hmm. dog, uh, because the dog is in front of the church, because he's raising the paw to attract my attention. That's, that will be a case of delusion of reference, where you, you think that something uh, calls you, refers to you, is about you, right? Um God has a mission for me, God is talking to me through this dog. So the idea is you've got this experience, it's weird, you're you're focused on this dog, but there is nothing about the situation that helps you understand what is it that you're supposed to do. The delusion comes as an explanation which allows you to move on. So you start thinking right. that God has a plan for you and so on, and you elaborate the delusion further. Now the delusion is implausible and people do not respect you for Talking about it or insisting that you're right about it, you yourself may be recognizing that it's implausible, that if someone else were to tell you the same thing, you wouldn't believe them, and yet you don't give up. Mm -hmm. So, my sense is that uh, because it is, you know, because I interpret it as a response, this makes sense of the fact that for people it's very difficult to give up delusions. It also um, makes sense of the fact that people seem to have sometimes some sort of insight into the implausibility of their delusional beliefs. Um, and it suggests that it's just a way of enabling uh, epistemic functionality from continuing uh, in a situation where you'd be compromised by anomalous experience. Whereas in the case of motivated delusion, it's not so much the anomalous experience that is paralyzing your cognitive <laughs> performance. it's terrible thing that happened to you right, uh, yeah. so it could be a, an enormous blow to your self-esteem and a sudden disability that changes your uh, career prospects and your um, destroys your romantic uh, relationship something that if you were to take in all at once would make you seriously depressed and suicidal but you try and uh, go on to life in some sense you try to respond to it and you form this kind of belief that um, okay maybe I'm not fully disabled maybe my girlfriend didn't really leave me actually we got married last week you, you rewrite reality you reinvent yourself in a way that allows you to overcome this very critical moment until you develop the resources psychological or otherwise to uh, accept reality as it is. So here we can see some kind of uh, analogy with the case of the person with dementia who rewrites are passed in a more positive way. And this is a way of kind of embellishing reality in, in such a way that makes, it, makes your belief unacceptable to others, but it also makes you uh, able to uh, talk about what is happening to you, engage in rehabilitation if that applies, and continue with your life.
1: Fabulous. And so Lisa, you've been very generous with your time, but I am, um, we've got a few more minutes and I want to make sure that we get to, uh, talking about, um, sort of optimistically biased beliefs, the sort of Dunning Kruger kinds of cases. Um, uh, so you say that there are circumstances where, um, uh, you know, overly rosy self-assessments, for example, uh, flattering uh, self-estimations, could also be epistemically innocent. Uh, Can you tell us about the argument there?
0: Yes. Uh, So the argument mirrors um, the argument for everyday confabulation being Mm -hmm. sometimes epistemically innocent. There are certain elements of continuity between the two cases, I think. So in the case of uh, everyday confabulation, we want to see ourselves as competent and largely coherent deliberators. I think we have optimistically biased beliefs We want to see us as skilled, uh, talented, better than our peers in a number of domains and also more uh, efficacious on our environment than we actually are. We want to see ourselves as having more power to change things for the better for ourselves and for the people we care about. but it's not uh, a case of wishful thinking, which would be fine. It's a case of believing, which is problematic because you believe reality or believe yourself to be different from what uh, reality or yourself is. Um, and so you uh, see the world with this kind of uh, rose-tinted glasses, which may skew your um, interpretation of the prospects that you have and may uh, make it the case that you take more risks than you need to and so on. So I think for for the standard uh, epistemologist, for the philosopher of psychology, and for most psychologists until quite recently, uh, optimistically biased beliefs are bad news, um, Mm. a sign of weakness, let's say. Um, But uh, recent uh, research coming from different research programs suggests actually that optimistically biased beliefs may be very good for us. Um, some people have suggested that they are the only case of misbelief, so inaccurate belief, which could be biologically adaptive, could explain <laughs> um, um, humans doing better in some circumstances because these kind of beliefs are instrumental to. Um, being seen uh, as having higher status in social groups, but also um, keeping uh, romantic partners who then provide additional resources for offsprings and increasing survival and and reproduction altogether. And it's quite something that is the only case where you can actually make an argument that there is um, a, a clear biological advantage. But of course, I'm interested in the epistemic advantage. And if possible, that's even less easy to make an argument (laughs) for that. Um, Because obviously epistemically biased beliefs are irrational. They are epistemically rational almost by definition because they involve uh, a bias. So they are not supported by the evidence that is available to us. And um, they are also resistant to counter evidence in many circumstances. But they do contribute to the sense that we are Agents. Um, and so that's where the parallel with everyday confabulation comes right. in. Uh, they make the case that in some circumstances, we can, after all, achieve the goals that we have set for ourselves because we have the capacity to do so, the skills, the talents, the determination, and because the goals themselves are desirable. And what happens is that instead of giving up when things do not go our way, If we are optimistically biased, we are much more likely to pursue in uh, trying to attain the goals that are important to us. And that doesn't mean automatic success, uh, of course. It just means increased pursuit. It just means that we're not giving up. But the fact that we're not giving up also means that we have better chances at attaining our goals. And this includes epistemic goals like um, other types of goals so um, it makes us uh, believe more in our capacity to change things in a way that sometimes becomes also Mm self-fulfilling so we um, start with an irrational belief uh, because it's not supported by evidence Uh, the belief stops being irrational not because we have improved the belief. Or we have given it up and replaced it with some other belief but because we have changed the evidence <laughs> we have changed reality right. in such a way that the evidence for the belief actually uh, is uh, more favorable by the end of the process and although not all cases of epistemically sorry of, of optimistically biased beliefs fit the self-fulfilling model uh, certainly some do and suggest that we can actually be quite effective in how we uh, think of ourselves as agents and make our agency just in virtue of that become causally uh, powerful as opposed to just epiphenomenal or or just a confabulation.
1: Well, fantastic. Um, Lisa, um, thank you for joining me today on New Books in Philosophy. It's been a real pleasure talking about your book.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It has really good to... Uh, been really good to revisit these kind of arguments with you
1: today. Fabulous. Um, And thank you listeners for joining us today on New Books in Philosophy. I'll remind you that we've been discussing Lisa Bortolotti's new book, which is titled The Epistemic Innocence of Irrational Beliefs. It's uh, newly published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy and bye for now.